Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Claudia Rueda about her book, Students of Revolution, Youth, Protest, and Coalition Building in Somoza-era Nicaragua, published by University of Texas Press in 2019. Dr. Rueda is Assistant Professor of History at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Claudia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, you know, how you came to this topic? Yeah, so I've been deeply invested in Central American history uh, for some time since first learning about the history of Central America in college. And I was really struck by the revolutionary movements that were going on in during the Cold War. And I, I wanted to learn more about it. I was particularly interested in this question of revolution and religion when I first got started. I uh, learned about liberation theology, and I found that subject to be so intriguing because religion, as we all know, right, has um, many kind of political manifestations. There are certainly conservative religious movements, and then here was liberation theology, which was a radical religious movement. And that really sparked an interest in me in trying to get at the question of how and why people protest. So I went to graduate school thinking I would pursue a topic on liberation theology. I wanted to study the base communities, maybe in El Salvador or Nicaragua. But then as I took more and more classes, um, I started to learn more about um, sort of the process of revolution and like what I would say the nitty gritty of how revolutions happen. And I became really interested in that. Um, specifically the question of when people turn to violence. Um, and so I was interested in studying Nicaragua because, as we know, right, Nicaragua had um, one of the few successful social revolutions of the Cold War era in Latin America. And I went down to Nicaragua hoping to sort of study this question of what makes people embrace violence, how do they turn, um, how does they come to accept the idea of violence as, as a legitimate option. Um, and I got really lucky because in the archives in Nicaragua, specifically at the UCA, the um, Central American University in the Inca, they have a huge archive on student movements. And I was really, um, I was really pleased to find that there was this archive had a tremendous diversity of documents and sources, and that really became the basis for this project, which was trying to understand the role that students play in revolution. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So you, um, in the title, sort of set the periodization for this book as being the the era of the Somoza dynasty, I guess we could call it. So could you walk us through kind of the, you know, an overview of Nicaraguan political history in the 20th century, um, just to kind of get listeners oriented to some of the important shifts during the period you study? Definitely. So I start um, with the I start in the 1930s with the rise of Anastasio Somoza Garcia, um, who came to power essentially in a coup in the mid-1930s. And the book traces um, really what those first years of his regime were like in the late 30s, early 40s. 
And he's assassinated in 1956 um, by an erstwhile poet student. Um, or he is a poet, but he had formerly been a student, Rigoberto Lopez Perez. Um, he's assassinated in 1956, and his younger son, Luis, or his oldest son, rather, Luis Samosa, takes power. And then Luis Samosa holds power until 1963 when he steps down. And there's this brief period when there is a non Samosa in office, Janeshik. Um, and then uh, Renishik actually um, and dies and he's replaced for a short period of time. And then in 1967, Anastasio Somoza de Baile, uh, the younger son, he decides to run for office and he ostensibly wins in an election that's marked by pretty severe fraud. Um, and then he holds power until 1979. So my book is really interested in sort of studying the role of student opposition to the Somoza family during this long period of dictatorship that lasts like I said, from the mid-1930s until 1979. Um, so during this era, um, something that you explain is that students um, had a very special place in Nicaraguan society. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about why that is, given the country's social structure, and then maybe just sort of allude to um, the unique political role that you found that these students had um, and how that developed over time. Yeah, so I was really interested in this question. And this is part, I think, of a larger literature that we see in the 2010s and maybe early 2000s emerging on the meaning of youth, right? And what it means to be young and how these categories change over time. So just to put my questions into that like historiographical context. And so I was curious about that. And I was curious about the role that students played in the revolution. And what I found is that in Nicaragua, where very few students have in, during the Samosa era, where very few young people had sort of the, the opportunity to pursue school beyond um, even primary school, but secondary school, high school, and then college, that students occupied a pretty unique place in the national imagination, right? Um, that students were considered to be this sort of protected group, that they deserved certain protections. What's interesting, though, is that, of course, um, some of the loudest voices defending students' rights had themselves been student activists. So in this case, I'm thinking of, for example, Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, who's a really important figure in Nicaraguan history. His name may sound very familiar to people because he was the editor of La Prensa and he's murdered in, and he's assassinated in, in the mid-1970s, triggering a wave of, of strikes, um, uh, strikes and protests. So Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, for example, had been a student activist who had been faced a great deal of repression had been driven into exile as a result of his political activities. And when he comes back to Nicaragua and is, takes over the helm of La Prensa, the major opposition newspaper, he really takes it upon himself to consistently defend student rights, students' rights, that the university should be this privileged bastion of autonomy, right? That it should be independent from the state, that students should have the right to talk about different ideas, to criticize the Somoza regime, etc., and so that language, though, of student privilege, of student, what I, um, what in the book I, I sort of term student exceptionalism, is fairly ex widely accepted. And that's unique, I think. Um, you would think, we might think um, that that's a, a very common idea, but it's actually not, right? Um, in the book, I mentioned that Jaime Pensado's work from Mexico, for example, shows how the Mexican state consistently delegitimized students. And I think we see the effects of that today, right, in the way that students um, uh, 
have sometimes been vilified and student protest has been vilified um, in Mexico in some places. So uh, that's one of the areas of the book that I, I was particularly interested in exploring, right? Which is what are these unique privileges students have? Why do they have them and how are they able to use them? That's a fascinating way to frame um, to frame this inquiry. Uh, so looking at the first two chapters together, um, can you explain how students challenged the elder Somoza in the 1930s and 1940s? And I, I think you identify sort of a shift in that period, what the democratic opening of the later part of the 1940s, what that meant for student politics. That's an interesting question. So what I found in the late 1930s and 1940s was a, that student uh, protest against the Samosa regime was fairly aggressive. It's, there was a very small, especially in the 40s and 30s, the population of students, who the student population within the university is very, very small. And yet these are students, mostly young men, um, who are children, I think, of the elites of the upper middle class. And they are really able to go hard against the Samosa regime and in sometimes very creative ways. So what we see in the 30s and 40s is like a kind of, um, I think, a very creative and politically strategic forms of protest. In the late 30s, they stage plays uh, that critique the Samosa regime. In the early 1940s, during World War II, they use the language of the war. They use the language of the four freedoms. They use the language of... um, battles against um, sort of these authoritarian regimes to critique Samosa, who had come out um, perhaps because of his great uh, desire to have a connection with the Roosevelt regime, had come out against, like on the side of the allies, right? And so they used that language to try to um, shame him, essentially, to try to shame him into um, opening up the political process and to not running again for office um, he had wanted to sort of extend his term in office during this time period. Um, and they faced some repression. There are mass arrests. There are exiles in this period. Um, students, a few students are exiled. And then in, but for the most part, those protests, it actually works that in that it forces Samosa not to uh, try to run again for president. And then that ushers into in this interesting period um, that historians have noted across Latin America, um, Gil Joseph calls it the democratic effervescence, which lasts, I think, um, it's throughout the mid-40s, so probably from 44 to about 48. This is a period when there are democratic movements springing up around the country, uh, I mean, around the region, people um, fighting for expanded democratic um, rights uh, throughout Latin America. And when I talk about democratic rights, I really want to be clear that what's fascinating about this period uh, Greg Grandin, Gil Joseph have noted is that what democratic rights means in the mid 1940s is not just the right to vote, it's not just the right to participate in politics, but it actually includes economic rights and um, social rights and labor rights, etc. So it's a very expanded notion of democracy. This is a fascinating period, I think, in Latin American history. And in Nicaragua, there is also a democratic effervescence. And I, um, that Jeff Gould, for example, the historian, has really shown a light on labor's um, role in that period. And then what I think my book does is really highlight the role students also played in the democratic effervescence in Nicaragua and their ability to consistently shine a light on the regime's um, 
repression, right? And on the regime's corruption. Uh, and they, like I said, they do this consistently and they really begin to develop a reputation for being sort of the leaders of, uh, not the leaders, but like the most vocal participants in this movement. So after this, uh, you know, really interesting period that you've just explained to us, um, what I thought was surprising and really interesting is that in the 1950s, um, after students have played this important political role, they then shift the venue of their politics back to their own campus and they change their tactics too. So could you tell us a little bit about that, that sort of shift and um, how students were able to continue to oppose the regime even after they had sort of retreated, at least um, perhaps it appeared uh, yeah. to have been a retreat? Yeah, definitely. So one of the major reasons why the retreat happens is that in the late 1940s, Somoza uh, attacks and successfully squashes this democratic movement. He drives a wedge between students and workers. Um, and it really it culminates in many ways in the murder of a student, Uriel Sotomayor, in 1948. Um, and the repression is very, very severe that year. And so students are sort of, are, are not sort of, they are driven back into the folds of the university um, by by this egregious murder of a student um, and by the wider repression, the arrest of of key leaders that happens in earlier that year. So uh, what happens though is that once they are back in the realm of the university, they don't actually stop fighting against the Somoza regime. I think that's really important. Instead, what they do is they just tackle the regime in a totally different way, right? So whereas in the 1940s, they had been very outspoken against Samosa's politics, they had been very, they attacked, we could say, the regime head on. In the 1950s, it's through the mechanism of university autonomy. And they begin to fight harder and, and becomes the primary focus in the early 1950s to have university independence from the state or autonomy, right? Total independence from the state. What this means is that the state can no longer dictate who the faculty is, that the state cannot appoint a rector, the, the head of the university, that instead that this, the university should be totally independent of the state. And that movement, I think, is, is really interesting because what it does is it allows the students to attack the universe, to attack the regime, but in a very subtle way, right? In in a very subtle way, they attack, um, for example, the leader of the university for acting like a dictator. And, and that always struck me as really fascinating and really, really clever, right? They're angry because the rector acts like a dictator. He makes all of these arbitrary rules. Um, and they, they even write to Samosa and they talk about this or they like talk to the news about this, right? And it's just very interesting because, of course, they are living in a dictatorship, right? So even though they're not explicitly critiquing Samosa, they are critiquing the idea of dictatorship, right? And um, this is another moment, for example, when Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, who I mentioned earlier, he's back in the country. He had been exiled in, in the 40s. He goes to school in Mexico, comes back. And he also says this, like, we should not allow these universities to be run essentially as dictatorships. Like, we should not allow them, their freedoms to be denied. Um, students need these freedoms. And I think it does, in the, uh, even though they're not saying this overtly, right, in fighting for students' rights, they are implicitly critiquing the lack of rights more broadly in their society. So I think the 1950s is just a really fascinating period of student activism. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the sort of texture of student activism in this era? You know, what sorts of um, groups or movements were formed and, you know, some of the some of the tactics that they used to make their make their points heard? Yeah, that's a great question. So in this period, in the early 1950s in particular, it often seems like the students, when they rise up are against, like, for example, the university administration, it's because student organizations have not been allowed to have certain events on campus that they want to have, for example. So what this tells us is that in the 19, early 1950s, there are some budding student groups that are forming, right? So most famously, I think we might think about Carlos Fonseca, Tomas Borges, Silvio Mayorga. These are three men who go on to become like the main leaders of the FSLN, the, the Sandinista of National Liberation Front. They get together in this early period in the 1950s, um, and they form, for example, a small socialist reading group. It's very, very small. I, I can't, uh, I don't want to overstate that. But I think that what we see is the beginning of this um, student not the beginning, but I think like a sort of, um, oh, I, not the beginning. What's a good word for this? We might say like a, a flourishing of student organization. I remember interviewing Carlos Tunerman, who will later become the rector of the National University. And he's a student in the early 1950s. And he talks about a reading group that he had formed along with some professors and other students that was designed, uh, its whole point was to try to research the question of university autonomy, what it looks like in other universities around Latin America, and how Nicaragua can get it. And they put together a bill, uh, an autonomy bill, and they try to go through all of the proper political channels. And then, of course, the Samosas block it, um, and this, they don't get their autonomy. So that what we see is, like I think, a big, um, some student organizing in the early 1950s but then it's very quickly um, cut off or repressed when Somoza Garcia is assassinated in 1956. When he's assassinated in 1956, the state really clamps down hard on student um, organizing, on student organizations, all organizations actually across the board. This is a period of uh, pretty intense censorship and repression. Uh, and so it, it's a, this is a period that in some ways is kind of hard to characterize. Because there's that sort of flourishing we see of student organizations in the early 50s. Then in 56, it's sort of stopped. And then when uh, Luis Samosa comes to power, he decides to give the university its autonomy, um, which I can talk a little bit about if you, if you have more questions. But once the university has its autonomy, that's when we see a real flourishing of student organizations, especially in terms of the, um, the student um, the student union, which is essentially like, or the student center, which is essentially like a student council. Yes, um, I would definitely like to hear more about sort of what happens after autonomy. Um, but maybe before we we move there, um, you've mentioned some repression and censorship, and I would love to know how you were able to research that kind of phenomenon, which you know, of course, states aren't necessarily trying to document. Um, so, how are you able to? to, um, you know, find evidence of, of that happening? Yeah, so um, a few ways. The Chiefly, it probably is oral history, uh, oral history, specifically in the interview I did with Carlos Tunerman. That was an amazing interview. I mean, I, I was so lucky to get to speak to him just because he was somebody who was a student activist and then a student administrator, and then a, 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 
an administrator in the university. So he just had this like very long perspective and he had really been like, I wouldn't say in the room where it happened, but like adjacent to the room where it happened, especially in the 1950s. And so he was a fount of um, information and very useful. Um, there, I also looked through memoirs uh, of people from this time period. And then I got um, another break, a, a lucky break in some ways, because somebody had done had had the tremendous good fortune of being able to do research in the military archives. So I wasn't able to do research in the military archives. I tried very hard, um, but I was never allowed in. Um, and I, I just, I was never able to see what they had, but somebody had, and they had pulled records for people like Carlos Fonseca, Tomas Borges, Silvio Mayorga. They had pulled their records from the military archives, from the, um, the Office of National Security. They had pulled those records and then they store, they put copies of them in the archives at the UCA. And so those were fascinating because what was within those files, especially for Carlos Fonseca, were essentially spy reports, like the person who had been sent to tail him when he was a college student uh, had been filing reports. And some of those made it into the files that somebody then copied and placed into the archives at the Inca. So it was a, it was a really good, um, it was a, a tremendous source for trying to figure out what was going on. But I would say oral histories, memoirs, and, and then uh, fortunately, those those OSN records. Um, I also, to try to get at this question, I looked at U.S. archives. But the problem with the U.S. archives in the 1950s, specifically the archives of the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Manawa, is that the ambassador was very, very close to the Somoza family. So in this period in particular, he tended to really downplay the repression that was going on in this period. He he talks about how in the aftermath of Somoza's assassination, the National Guard um, and Luis Somoza, they, they really did a very professional job trying to pursue uh, sort of like to pursue the case of who had assassinated him and who had helped him. But the reality that that's so far from the truth, right? That basically the National Guard put out a dragnet and arrested all of these people and people were tortured in, in really brutal ways. Um, but none of that really made it into the surprise, surprise, right? None of that made it into the archives uh, or very little of that made it into the U S archives in this period. So those weren't very helpful. <laughs> But you did your due diligence. So. I did. <laughs> so moving on um, to talk a little bit about the period when the university has received its autonomy, um, I was really intrigued to see that a rector, um, you know, a sort of modernizing figure actually sort of helps, it seems, the cause of student activism and helps to consolidate the university space as one of opposition. So could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, that that phenomenon, um, maybe of, you know, student activists sort of working um, almost in collaboration with the administration? Absolutely. Because what happens is the rector that leads the university, the rector that's chosen to lead the university is Mariano Fios Gil. And he is chosen in part because um, he ha- he's a brilliant educator and he's beloved by students. He had, um, yeah, he was a beloved law professor at the university. Um uh, he had been a liberal. He had actually worked in the Somoza regime in the 1940s. And um, 
Luis Mosa chooses him at the uh, sort of under the counsel of some other members of his administration, chooses him. And when Fios he goes to talk to Somoza uh, or like decides whether or not to take it, he says he is going to take it on the condition of university autonomy that the university be granted its autonomy. So I, I bring this up only to say that he was this rector was dedicated to the idea of autonomy from the beginning, like he from from this period when he takes office, like he is really committed to the idea that the university needs to be independent from the state. And he fought hard for that. And he will continue to fight hard for that even after it's granted its autonomy, because the issue in Nicaragua is that the president does give the university its autonomy, but it's not a fiscal autonomy. So the state still determines its budget. And as we know, whoever controls the purse strings in some ways, um, holds power. But what's very interesting is that even though the state controls the budget, the university does continue to have be able to operate um, largely independently in the late 50s and, early, and throughout the 60s. So what this means is that Fios, he, he was really committed to the idea of university autonomy and to the idea of modernizing the university and creating sort of a university community. He talks about the university as a small, great republic. He really saw it in terms of this idea that we're building this, like, like I said, like a, a new community. And he works very closely with the students who loved and admired him. Carlos Tunerman, for example, was a, a huge admirer of Mariano Fayasil because I think he, he was just so committed to the idea of student um, autonomy, of university autonomy, etc. And Mariano Fayosil works hard to promote the idea to promote student organization. That doesn't mean it's a perfect relationship. Certainly not. There's conflicts that I detail in the book too, but I think what it allows is it allows for the university to really become a space where students feel free to speak up, where students feel free to take on a greater role, um, uh, like a greater, um, greater participation, right? He encourages in many ways, I think what you we would say is like the idea of a modern university, right? With dorms and um, uh, a, a, like a student, a space for students to gather, to go to the gym, et cetera. He promotes faculty research. Um, he tries to get them to like go to conferences, et cetera. So um, I think there's a sense that he's really associated with the modernization of the university and students they really appreciated that, and they felt very loyal to him. Even decades later, I remember interviewing Vilma Nunez, a human rights lawyer um, today, uh, and who had been a student in the 1950s, and she was really a, a very, um, and Carlos Tunerman, they had a lot of admiration for what the rector had been able to do for the university. Um, and as part of the modernization of the university, has the student body changed or grown um, during this time period, or is that something that hasn't happened yet? So it's growing very slowly. It's growing very slowly, um, and it, it is changing. So I, I mentioned this in the book that in one of the um, letters that the rector writes, he talks about the students coming from this huge swath of society, from the children of washerwomen, I think is the quote, um, to like the children of, uh, you know, like established politicians in Nicaragua's most elite families. And that's true, right? Like Vilma Nunez, for example, is the child of a single mother. She's able to go to the university, Carlos Fonseca. His father is a landowner, but he's at the 
illegitimate child of um, his father. And uh, oh, I think she was, uh, um, uh, she did laundry in uh, Matagalpa. So his wife, I mean, his mother. So, so he was a child, for example, who didn't come from this like privileged background, although he had his father, his, he could count a little bit on his father's support, very little, if I recall correctly. So there does seem to be an expanding of the student profile in this period. And we are seeing more student, uh, female students, for example, more women attending the university, but the numbers are still quite small and they're not really going to begin to balloon or to, to get much bigger, I think, until about the um, 1970s. Thank you. That's helpful to kind of um, start to understand the social context too, in which these political developments are taking place. So uh, moving toward uh, chapter five, we are moving into the 1960s. Um, I think there are a couple things that would be interesting to talk about here. Um, one would be that your depiction of sort of student politics in Nicaragua in the 1960s uh, might be surprising to people who think about Latin American student politics in this era. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the contrast um, between what you found and then what's been written about in other places. Um, how is it exactly that Cold War tensions play out in these sort of unique ways in Nicaragua? Yeah, um, I'm really glad you asked that question because I do think that's one of the really big points that I want to make in my book, right? which is that I think that the we have a sense of the 1960s as sort of like this peak moment of student protest, because in many places it was, right? It was a moment where there are these massive student uprisings that are met with tremendous violence. Um, and we see that in many places. We see it in Uruguay. We see it in Brazil. We see it in Mexico. Um, in 1960s and specifically 1968 is a really pivotal moment. But what's interesting is that that's not the case everywhere. Um, 1968, and, and I think it's an important point to stress because it really um, highlights this fact that student movements, I think, in some circles tend to be sort of dismissed as like faddish in some ways. And I don't want to create a straw man, but I think in the popular imagination, there is this sense that like there it was a, a trend, a protest was a trend in the 1960s that student protests it responds in some ways to what's going on in other places. Scholars have gone a long way to debunking this idea. But I think looking at places that are different also is really important. So in the 1960s, fascinatingly enough, it does, the early 1960s does get off with a real rise in student militancy in Nicaragua. The Somoza regime uh, massacres a student protest in 1959, uh, shoots at a student protest, they kill four students, they wound dozens of others. And it really creates a sense of um, rage among the, the university student population in Nicaragua. And there's a real turn towards more radical forms of dissent, a real embrace of um, uh, the guerrilla movements of um, attacking the regime head on, right? But what's very interesting is that it also starts to, that, that um, rage, it begins to diminish over time. Pretty quickly is starting, I would say, around the time that René Schick takes office, right? That there's this small, small democratic opening. And I have to say, um, in the book, and even now telling you this, it's funny to use a word like democratic opening 
to talk about the Schick administration because he is appointed by the Samosas, right? There's an election, of course, but like in the way that there were always elections under Samosa, they just were uh, blatantly fraudulent or marked by corruption. But there is still this moment where there's not a Samosa in office and there is this hope that you can work through the political channels. And I think that's very interesting. In the mid-1960s, there's this real hope that, yeah, that the Sandinistas, for example, embrace sort of a, a electoral path, briefly, um, Republican mobilization, it's called. Um, and so I think that that um, possibility actually does a lot to diminish um, student rage and diminish student uh, sort of the energy of the student movement which becomes splintered. And so what we see in the mid-1960s in Nicaragua is actually the ascendancy of a moderate student organization, the Christian Democratic Front, um, that's very, very moderate. In fact, um, it proposes a a third way between capitalism and communism. It critiques uh, U.S. imperialism, but it also critiques what they perceive to be Soviet imperialism or imperialism from the Soviet Union. And so in this middle period of the 1960s, there's actually a flourishing of political options, right? And students are divided between all of these different groups. And so it's, it's very interesting. Um, the point that I want to make is that there isn't a massive student mobilization in 1968 like there is elsewhere. Um, and in part, I think that's because students are experimenting with all of these different ways of participating in the political process. Of course, Luis Samos, I mean, Anastasio Somoza, the Violet will take power in 1967 and immediately begins increasing repression, right? And that does lead to student more student mobilization, but it's going to take some time to sort of rebuild this um, committed militant student movement. Um, so just to follow up on some of the um, really interesting points that you made, um, can you give us a sense of whether these more moderate student activists used very different tactics than maybe some of the groups with more radical um, political beliefs and, you know, sort of how, um, how antagonistic would, you know, maybe socialist or communist students be compared to these Christian Democrats? Were they able to, um, you know, build coalitions in certain moments or did they really not like each other? Yeah. So they really don't like each other um, throughout the mid 1960s and guess who brings them together? Anastasio Somoza, right? So they begin to coordinate actions just as soon as he takes office, essentially, and even, I think, before. So he really brings them together. But there is is intense animosity between them, I think, um, with each student, each student group sort of viewing the other as like, um, just like taking the wrong idea that these people have like are taking the wrong path. So there's a lot of animosity, I think, um, between those student groups, a lot of uh, real anger. Um, interestingly enough, in this period, I, and I, this is an argument that I make it when I talk about this in that in that chapter, is that in this period, their strategies are not that different. Their end goals are very different, right? I think the, the students of the Revolutionary Student Front, the Fed, they are interested in much more like structural change. Um, the students in the Christian Democratic Front are interested in sort of creating a political opening. They too want reform, but um, it's, it's of a, a very different order. And they're both sort of operating through um, not so much organizing communities as uh, like going in and talking to people um, and working with them to fight for certain needs, agendas, um, 
not so they're not working with organizing com- with communities so much as they are doing volunteer work right and holding forums sort of like um it's a much more it's a different form of it's a, it's activism it's a, it's a form of activism that um they're both sort of embedded in and then that's going to start to change after Luis Somoza takes power great thank you this is really interesting to think about um so we'll maybe try to talk about the last two chapters together. Um, but before we do that, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the FSLN and, you know, sort of how that movement grows and changes over the 60s and 70s? Yeah. So the FSLN um, sort of comes together. It, it, like I said, the, the founders of the FSLN had met when they were college. Well, they had something had met earlier, but they came together in college and the um, FSLN is founded in the early 1960s, and it's really pretty small. It's really pretty small for much of the 1960s and into the early 1970s. Um, I'm forgetting the exact statistic that Matilda Zimmerman mentions in in her book uh, Sandinista, but I mean it's it's much smaller than you you would think. Um, and they are trying really hard, especially in the 1960s, if I recall correctly, to sort of do like the focal theory of going into the mountains and then go from the mountains waging guerrilla warfare. And then um, that would expand into the larger movement against the Somoza regime. But then they suffer a series of pretty debilitating military defeats in the late 1960s. And that really forces the leadership of the FSLN to rethink its plan. And I think this process is amazingly recorded in Monica Baltodano's um, Memorias de la Lucha Sandinista, uh, her four-volume work of interviews with people who uh, participated in the Sandinista Revolution. It's amazing. Uh, she does such a good job of interviewing many different people who talk about this process. That what happens is that the FSLN suffers a series of debilitating defeats in the late 1960s. Their numbers are very, very small. And they start to think, they come to believe that they need to actually start working to build um, sort of the urban movement, right? To to build up their forces, um, to build a mass movement of support. And that's where students come in. That's where my book sort of picks up for those last two chapters, when the FSLN has committed itself to this uh, strategy of accumulating, um, of accumulating sort of urban uh, and rural, but um, support. And then once they start to do that, the movement begins to grow pretty rapidly in the 1970s, and it continues to grow as the FSLN develops the capacity to undertake these dramatic actions against uh, the Somoza regime, like uh, going to a Christmas party and um, holding the guests, um, a Christmas party held in honor, I believe, of the U.S. ambassador who had just left when they arrived. And then they hold several of the guests hostage. They also... um, go to the lay siege, not lay siege, but occupy the National Palace. Um, And so all of these events are a dramatic display of the FSLN's level of organization, of their capacity. And that also begins to attract more and more people to their their movement, essentially. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. And I would just um, invite you to talk more about you know, the really pivotal role that students play in that process. And it sounds like that's something that, um, you know, people sort of know, but hasn't really been um, written about uh, until, you know, now that you've, you've done it. So could you tell us more about how they become so critical to opposition movements and, you know, how exactly they're able to build coalitions 
beyond campus. And I would really love to hear kind of about the the everyday, um, you know, processes that they were involved in and what that was like kind of in lived experience. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what the uh, um, leaders of the FSLN and working with members of the Fed, the Revolutionary Student Front, and eventually those organizations, they are become, there's a lot of overlap between them. But what they realize is that students in the early 1970s, in part thanks to autonomy, in part thanks to these decades of student activism that has been going on since the Samosas take office, they have a little bit of protection and that they can do certain organizing work that obviously the FSLN cannot do overtly, right? The FSLN is an organization whose stated goal is to overthrow the Samosa regime. The Fed, meanwhile, has maintained, I guess we could say like plausible plausible deniability is not the right word, but something like that idea, right? That the, the Fed has maintained this sense that like everybody knows they're closely aligned with the FSLN, but technically they're, they're an independent organization. And so what that means is that students have a, a lot of luxury or not luxury, but the opportunity to be doing organizing work under the guise of all sorts of other activities, right? So in the early 1970s, this is when we're seeing a real flourishing of liberation theology. And a lot of young people inspired by liberation theology are working in impoverished neighborhoods and rural areas. And it's not volunteer work that they're doing in this period, although it may have started that way. It begins to be real work of solidarity and real work trying to organize with people, not um, for them, if that makes sense, that there's a real sense, it seems to me in the interviews that I looked at um, in Monica Baltodano's book, and also in the interviews that I did, there's a real sense of cooperation, right? A real sense of um, let's work together. Um, how can we help you achieve your goals, for example, in urban communities? And the goals that I'm talking about might be like the need for lower prices for staple goods might be the need for electricity or water, et cetera, right? And that is really, really important. I think that's a really important moment when connections are being made across classes, across all sorts of social categories um, that then creates a lot of goodwill, not just for students, but a, a sense of like mutual um, responsibility in some ways, right? Uh, connections are being made. So the FSLN is able to, in some ways, take advantage of, not take advantage because students are a key part of the FSLN, but they benefit from students' ability to move between these different circles relatively undetected at the beginning of the 1970s. So in my book, for example, let me just give you a quick example to make this clear. Um, I interviewed uh, Dora Maria Tellez. She talks about how when she was a medical student at the National University in León, she would go into sort of the poor neighborhoods to do uh, health work for her degree, apparently. Like she would go and try to do these surveys to see like what people needed, etc. But then she would return to those groups later on to do other organizing work, right? And to see what people needed and how like they might work together to fight for. Um, and that was part of her FSLN cell. So that's what I'm talking about, that students were able to use sort of their position in society, um, their flexible position in society, their their right to move within all of these different circles to do organizing work for the FSLN. And that was an overt tactic that the FSLN had. They That's what they wanted to do. And they worked hard to get um, students invested in this. Bayardo Arce talks a lot about this 
in his interviews that he did with um, Monica Baltodano, for example, and which I talk about in the book. Yeah. Does that, did I go too far afield, Rachel? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, can you tell us also about the the sort of um, support roles and, you know, the sort of overlooked significance of that kind of, you know, nonviolent work that students were um, taking care of? Yeah. So I, I think that work is really important because those connections that are being made um, are, are going to become vital connections for spreading information about the revolutionary option. That's the argument that I make in, in the last chapter of my book, that there becomes a sense, like I said, of mutual responsibility, right? Where students want to work with uh, impoverished communities and then the people in those communities also want to work with students and they're able to mutually help each other. Um, and it, it provides sort of... Um, yeah, the kind of personal linkages in some ways that enables people to to justify taking action. Um, the best example I can give of that, for example, is the case of Adeline Sue, who I mentioned in the last chapter. Um, and, and I'm sure there are many more examples like her, but she is somebody who became politically active via the Christian movement, um, via, via liberation theology. She, does, she did a lot of work in um, sort of the poor neighborhoods um, where she lived. And then she developed the kind of connections that meant that when she later joined the FSLN and then she was killed, um, her death really resonated with a lot of people. And I mentioned um, a, a woman, Maribel Durez, I, I remember if I recall her name correctly, who talks about how heavily she, she had been a child when Adlin Su visited her family and visited her neighborhood. And when Adlin is murdered, it really impacts her. And and she resolves and her father resolves that like they, they need to take action. So I want to be clear that the story is not that simple, right? It's not just like, oh, these people came in and I loved them and, um, and that's why I'm going to be politically active, right? There already is um, a lot of political consciousness in these neighborhoods, obviously, right? There is a long sense of um, being um, marginalized in Nicaraguan society in this time. The point simply I want to make is that these linkages are still important for sort of providing information and providing avenues to take action, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, as we move toward the end of our conversation, um, if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what student politics have been um, after the Sandinistas came to power um, and then the decades since, and maybe speak about, you know, some of the connections with the present that we might make between um, your book and contemporary events. Absolutely. So um, I've always thought, my, my book ends in 1979, and I allude very, very briefly to the um, National Literacy Crusade, which I also found fascinating and which I think could be the subject of a, a brilliant historical study. Um, but what, what's interesting is that in the 1980s, the student movement that had fought so hard for autonomy from the state, that had fought so hard to preserve its independence from the government and from the military, what happens in the 1980s is that they have become so associated with the Sandinistas, which makes sense, right, that they lose that autonomy. And the student movement of the 1980s, as far as I can tell, become, it becomes a wing of the FSLN. And that loss of autonomy is something that continues to this day, right? And I think that could be a very, very fascinating historical study, how that happens, what the costs were, 
what the consequences were. Because I think we see that today in the way that the Juventud Sandinista, the Sandinista youth, is essentially a, a wing of the FSLN and has been very closely associated with the Ortega administration. Daniel Ortega is currently president of Nicaragua. He had been president in the 80s. He's elected again in the early 2000s, 2006, I believe, and is president to this day. And they have become kind of a force, um, uh, a force. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the phrase to a word to use to describe them, but they have become kind of enforcers for the regime. So when there have been protests, I remember there were protests when I was there doing my field research. Um, the Juventud Sandinista comes out and attacks the protesters, right? So that loss of autonomy, I, I think, would be a very is a very important avenue to be explored because what it has meant is that the student organizations, for example, the UNEN, um, was sort of the student union that emerges in this period in the after the eighties. They're very very closely aligned to the FSLN. And I think there are consequences for that in terms of the independence of the student movement and, and their legitimacy, I would argue. So that's a, a really important point to make. Um, as many people probably know, Nicaragua is in the midst of a profound political crisis that began in 2018, um, in April 2018, when there were a series of protests, um, interestingly enough, led by students, but students, um, the protests began sort of my understanding, in solidarity with several other groups in society. So um, there were two events that largely triggered the protests of 2018. One was a fire in an important um, natural uh, preserve or reserve um, in, in Nicaragua. And then the second was a reform to the social security system that happened that spring um, or in, around March and April of 2018. And there was student uprisings that were instantly met with violence and um, numerous people, dozens of people were killed. It was largely determined that the violence um, was from the state. And I think that's a really interesting, um, not interesting, I don't mean to minimize it, but that's a really fast, important um, distinction between the kind of protests that we saw under Somoza and the protests that we're seeing under Ortega. Because for the most part, during the Somoza regime, the state they did shoot at students. I, in this interview, I've mentioned times where they killed students, where they shot at peaceful student protesters. But unlike in other countries, for the most part, in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, that was fairly rare. And when it happened, it was met with widespread condemnation. That changes in the 1970s. But what I found really interesting was how quickly, again, interesting is not the right word, but what I found uh, an, an important point to consider is how quickly student protest was met with state violence. And, and you have to wonder um, what the lessons from the Somoza era, the Ortega regime has taken. What, what are the lessons from the era that the Ortega regime has taken? So, yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. That That's really, um, you know, really significant um, information that you've just shared with us. And I'm sure um, it will inform the way that we read news about Nicaragua um, in the coming coming months. Well, um, we've been speaking today with Claudia Reda about her book, Students of Revolution, Youth, Protest, and Coalition Building in Somoza Era Nicaragua. Claudia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Oh, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>